Welcome to What's Not Priced In, a weekly investor podcast by Fattail Investment Research. In a world of confusion and rapid change, experts Kirill Prakopenka and Greg Canavan look behind the headlines to unveil the hidden opportunities within the Australian stock market. Now, let's dive in to today's episode. G'day everyone and welcome to another episode of What's Not Priced In. Uh, I'm here running solo today. Uh, my usual colleague Kirill is still on holidays, uh, still enjoying himself over in uh, sunny or maybe cold London, whichever it might be, I'm not too sure. Uh, but we've got a lot to get through today, so I'm uh, going to get stuck straight into it. Uh, the market, plenty going on there. We had some inflation figures out, worse than expected in Australia yesterday. Uh, bear market seems to be kicking in in a bit more uh, with a bit more, uh, I guess, ferociousness in global markets around the world. So going to kick off with running you through uh, a few charts, but also we're going to mostly talk about this excellent bit of research that uh, come across my desk. Uh, well, didn't really come across my desk. I went and searched it. Um, Hoisington Asset Management guy called Lacey Hunt uh, issues uh, probably the world's preeminent uh, macro research once a quarter to very little fanfare. Not many people know it's released. He doesn't really uh, broadcast it too much, but those in the know, uh, go to the website and check it out. And there's some really interesting stuff in there in this quarterly report that I don't think is priced into markets. And we're going to, uh, or I'm going to take you through that uh, in a bit of detail. But before we do that, oh, actually, one more thing I needed to mention. We also have a special guest on uh, later who is going to come on and talk about the best performing asset in the market this year. So um, stick around for that because that's going to be a really interesting conversation. All right, so let's get stuck into some charts first and foremost. Uh, I'm going to run through uh, some major asset markets around the world just to give you a picture of how things have been performing. So let's do it. All right, so we'll start with the S&P 500. As you can see, uh, it's recently made a, a new low uh, for the move. So it's rallied back up here into these moving averages, turned back down uh, to making, making new lows. And these moving averages are about to cross to the downside. Uh, shorter term, uh, I do think the market is probably due for a little bit of a bounce. But this is showing the characteristics of a downward trend. You've got a high here, a low a lower high, a lower low, lower high, lower low. And these things are generally play out in, in terms of a trend. So we, I do think you're going to see this continue in the months ahead. Uh, maybe in the weeks, uh, in, in the next couple of episodes, we'll look at some sentiment uh, measures just to see whether we are getting towards a, a more sustainable bottom. Uh, but at the moment, I think this is just an indication that this bear market is starting to, to, to gather a little bit of speed. Uh, moving on to the NASDAQ, very similar situation there. Hi, um, lower highs and lower lows, uh, characteristic of a uh, downward trending market. Uh, looking, I'll just zoom back out a little bit. This is an important chart. This is the uh, Russell 2000 ETF. So this is more sm uh, uh, smaller stocks or a small cap index, uh, which reflects a lot of companies that are uh, more, I, I guess, exposed to the U.S. economy rather than, say, the large cap global uh, stocks uh, like the Magnificent Seven, the Apples, etc., that uh, dominate NAS Nasdaq and the S&P 500. So we saw a breakout here, peaked in in July, and it's really turned back down and, and now starting to to make new lows, which is a a very nasty looking chart. 
and suggest that the downturn you're seeing in the, the larger indices uh, is, is genuine as well. Moving just on to a couple of Aussie indices, similar thing here. We spoke about this in previous episodes. We had a breakdown uh, out of this consolidation pattern, rallied back up to uh, the moving averages. Uh, and we, you know, we said at the time, get ready for a bounce, but not a bottom. And we've moved down to new lows here. Again, this is probably getting towards a short term short term bounce. Uh, it's, it's quite a distance away from the moving averages. So should bounce at some point uh, soon. Um, but still, it, it, it's suggesting that we're in a the bear market is is starting to, to unfold here and we're, we're going to go lower in the months ahead. Uh, I should point out uh, recording this at around about midday on Thursday 26th of October. Uh, so this, these charts don't include today's moves and um, so far today it is a it is a reasonably decent down down day uh, in the market. So these charts will be a little bit different, but not too much. Um, but this shows the ASX 200 bank banking index, uh, and you know it's um, going to looks like it'll break down a little bit here as well. So more than likely coming down to the the lower end of this uh, longer consolidation range here, um, and we'll see whether we get a get a bounce there. That could be a buying opportunity for the banks. Uh, we'll have to wait and see but certainly looks like more weakness uh, is coming. Similar picture with the resources uh, index. This is the ASX 200 resources index right on uh, right on support here. Probably going to break down there today. I think uh, Fortescue has come out with a uh, bit of a profit, profit warning or a production warning. So um, likely some weakness coming through there as well. And if that um, does break lower, you should expect prices to fall considerably because there's not a great deal of support below there. Uh, similar picture to the uh, Russell 2000. This is the ASX Small Ordinaries uh, Index. And as you can see, it's broken down there and we're right back to, to these lows from earlier on. Uh, in When I say earlier on, the lows of the the, the initial bear market move. Um, so back down to September 2022 lows or not far off it. Um, there is a lot of value in the small cap uh, sector, but you know, with that, the trend uh, not being on your side, uh, it probably pays to just just wait and see how that unfolds out and see where the where the bottom um, is actually going to be. Moving on to gold, we saw this gold breakdown and then spike higher again. So this is a, an unusual and interesting move, um, and it, and it is certainly bullish for gold that it didn't really sustain that breakdown. Buying came in rather quickly and obviously there's some geopolitical issues behind that. Uh, but regardless, the chart looks pretty strong there. And if it can consolidate around these levels for a few months or a few weeks at least, uh, builds a base for another move higher, potentially into all-time highs on the US dollar. Uh, in Aussie dollar terms, gold's already, gold is already at new all-time highs. So um, Aussie dollar gold is often a leading indicator and could suggest uh, US dollar gold prices are going to follow soon. So that's an interesting development, especially given uh, the research that I'm going to take you through in a moment. So just keep that in mind. Uh, copper, on the other hand, looks pretty weak here. Um, it's really just trying to hold on at the lower part of this consolidation range. I wouldn't be surprised to see copper break down here uh, and, and probably form um, a low around these lows from basically back in 2020. Uh, sorry, 2022, from the from the sharp breakdown, it reached in these sharp lows here, uh, which was July 2022. 
wouldn't be surprised if it comes back down uh, to, to this level, at which point I think you know it, if if we do see some buying there, it could be could be a really good good long term buying opportunity. Just quickly moving on through energy, uh, oil is corrected uh, after its strong run up, uh, which is not surprising, but the trend is still looking quite strong there. Uh, and Brent crude uh, also looks pretty pretty healthy. So energy, um, obviously, it's going to be impacted by higher rates and slowing economy, uh, but overall. Uh, this trend looks looks pretty pretty strong. Just quick look at the U.S. dollar. Uh, it's had a really really strong rally, which has been a headwind for commodities and and gold uh, for for some time. And this is taking a bit of a pause. Uh, the trend is still looking quite strong there. So uh, have to be be wary of another leg up in this, causing problems for the commodity complex. Um, tips, which is the inverse of the real interest rate. So as real interest rates move higher, tips continue to fall. Uh, and we're looking, um, I've showed this chart quite often, um, really trying to for find support around these uh, very long-term lows. And if I really stretch it out there, you'll see that it's a long, long time since uh, the, the tips have been uh, around these levels back in 2009. Uh, further, just looking at the TLT, uh, I wrote a, an article recently for subscribers um, showing that TLT is down 50% over 800 days. Well, it's probably a bit more than 50% now, which is uh, larger than the bear market uh, that the S&P 500 went through in 2000 to 2003 uh, and approaching um, the, bear, uh, the bear market or the S&P drawdown of 57%. Uh, back in 2008-2009. But the difference here is this has been a lot longer bear market. This is up to 800 days plus. Uh, so I think it was Bank of America researchers came out recently and said it's the uh, the biggest bond bear market in history. So from a contrarian perspective, you know, that gets me interested. You think how much worse can it get? And of course, it can always get worse. Uh, but if you're taking a longer term view, uh, I think bonds are pretty attractive at these levels. And just on the Aussie uh, bond front, this is the uh, ETF of the BlackRock Australia Core Composite Bond, uh, which is, a, I guess, a, a bunch of different uh, maturities lumped in together. Uh, we've seen a recent selling has brought this ETF back down towards the lows it reached in uh, October 2022 and uh, June 2022. So we're coming down to retest those lows. Uh, you know, my view would be that we'll probably hold those lows, and I think this is a good buying opportunity if you want to add a little bit of defensiveness to your portfolio. Um, but we'll we'll wait and see. The the trend is down, so the probability, from a trend perspective, um, it always wait uh, always pays to sort of wait and see where the support comes in before you jump on it. But from a yield perspective, uh, given the slowdown in the economy, I think bonds are looking pretty decent um, at this level. And uh, finally, I just thought it'd be interesting to show you one of the best-looking charts in the market at the moment, uh, and that is Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin has had a very strong rally uh, over the over the past week or so um, after consolidating and basing for many, many months. Uh, and as I said, got a special guest on uh, after this quick analysis to to go through what might be driving Bitcoin uh, and, and where he thinks it might go from here. So that gives you a quick overview of all the uh, all the the, the main uh, indices. Uh, the trend, the downward trends are still in place, um, and the reason why I think the market is starting to price this in. 
So let me take you through uh, a few charts from Lacey Hunt's recent uh, excellent quarterly review and outlook. And apologies in advance, but I'm going to read some of his uh, uh, commentary that goes with these charts just to give you uh, an indication of, of why I think uh, some of the, the information here is so important uh, and, you know, for considering how you might want to position your portfolio uh, for the next couple of uh, couple of months. Everyone's been talking a lot in the US about uh, the approaching recession, but the approaching, approaching recession never seems to come. And, and I've more recently been hearing commentary about, well, okay, the recession's not coming, so maybe it's a no landing, maybe it's a soft landing, maybe the US economy is more resilient than we all expect. Uh, and you know, markets make opinions. So when markets don't do what you expect, you start to then change your opinion to try to work out what uh, situation should be. So keep an open mind. Uh, this analysis, um, while I think it's very uh, solid um, and it's based in based on long-term macro uh, macroeconomic fundamentals, um, you know, there's no right answer. Um, so I'm just keeping an open mind. But I just think this is worth passing on, worth discussing, uh, and worth your consideration. So if you want to read it in full, go to um, just type in Hoisington. H-O-I-S-I-N-G-T-O-N, investment management, and it'll come up and you just click on, I think it's economic economic outlook and click on the latest uh, quarterly review and outlook piece. Um, so first of all, we've got a, um, a chart here with real median household income. Um, and as you can see, it's, uh, it's, it's pulling back, um, peaked in 2019. We had the 2020 uh, brief recession from COVID uh, and it's continued pulling back from there in conjunction with this chart which shows the real average weekly earnings of full-time wage and salary earners in the US has contracted at uh, a rate that has you haven't seen since the early 1980s recession. So just with these two charts in mind I'll go back to the first one. Let me read you out what uh, what Lacey Hunt has to say about it. Quote Rapid inflation affects everyone, but the greatest burden falls upon the modest and low-income households. U.S. inflation-adjusted median household income fell 4.7% from 2019 to 2022, bringing it back to the 2018 level. So this is this chart here. So we're back down to 2018 levels uh, for real median household income. Uh, the next chart. Real average weekly earnings of salaried and full-time hourly workers, which represents approximately 120 million Americans, fell at a 2.4% annual rate over the last 12 quarters. So that's this chart here. As you can see, it's a pretty, pretty sharp fall. These income measures demonstrate the depth of the damage caused by the inflationary surge, as well as the severe impact to the middle of the income spectrum. As a consequence of these income losses, housing affordability is at multi-decade lows, and Cox Automotive calculates that new cars are so expensive that they are not affordable for one half of the households in this survey. Uh, so that just gives you an indication of the the damage done on the, um, I, I guess, the income side of things from inflation. But the next thing that I think is really interesting is uh, this chart 
again, it's it's a bit it's a bit wonkish because it is talking about these big macroeconomic uh, flows rather than sort of market centric flows, but it does have a, a big imp- implication into I think how the markets might uh, react to tighter monetary policy over the next couple of months, and indeed the markets are already reacting to as you've seen with those trends that I showed you uh, earlier. So this chart here, a uh, bit wordy, but net national saving. Uh, equals private saving, foreign saving, and government saving. So what it's it's really trying to show here is is how much uh, net national saving is the U.S. economy doing. Um, and as uh, the report points out, in the second quarter, saving was negative fifty nine billion. And as you can see, that's that's part of where it's dropped below zero there just recently. And he says the negative reading resulted from a government dissaving that was greater than the combined saving of the pro- private and foreign sectors. An absolute imperative for positive saving is that absolute and relative budget deficits must be reduced substantially in economic expansions. But in financial year 2022 and 2023, the US deficits totaled a massive $3 trillion, or an estimated 5% of GDP per year. Without saving, a country's capital stock does not rise on a sustained basis. When the downturn hits, private saving will fall and government dissaving will rise. So going back to this chart, it says since 1947, saving has only been negative during and immediately after the recession of the great financial crisis, which you can see here dropped down quite sharply into a, into a large negative reading. But while remaining positive, the significant multi-quarter decreases in saving prior to the GFC were only associated with slumping real GDP and recessions. So each time back to 1947, you can see here, 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 all the way through every single recession was characterized by a uh, decline in the savings rate. Now, here is the first time since the GFC and, of course, COVID that we've gone into a negative uh, uh, net national saving in the US. Um, So I guess the implication is that a recession uh, could well be around the corner. Now, speaking of that, Uh, Lacey goes on to say, the current widely held view that fiscal policy can remain stimulative and inflationary is not supported by scholarly research. Now, a lot of the things that I hear um, to to justify why the US economy isn't going into recession is the massive fiscal spending that uh, is going on. And that obviously makes sense from a shorter term perspective. But as Lacey says, the deficit for fiscal year 2023, which ended in September 30th, was approximately $1 trillion greater than FY 2022. So obviously that's going to provide some stimulus in the short term. The private domestic non-bank sector is the source of the funding for the entire budget deficit. These private sector funds are thereby diverted from productive use in the positive multiplier private sector. That is, the government borrowing crowds out private investment. This means that increasing negative multiplier government spending to reverse poor economic conditions will be counterproductive. So essentially what he's saying is that all the money from the private sector is financing government spending, which has a negative multiplier effect on the economy, i.e. the spending that the government does doesn't produce future economic growth. It actually detracts from it over time. So uh, moving on to the next part of the analysis, which I think, again, is really, really interesting because these are giving us hints as to what is coming down the pike. It says inflation and real bank credit since 1960 have exhibited a virtually unblemished record of lagging the GDP cycle. 
Yet over the past four to five quarters, they both declined while real GDP was rising. These divergences suggest that the economy is far weaker than real GDP and employment indicate and that the economy is currently far more susceptible to a downturn than is generally recognised. Uh, so let's have a look at the inflation side of things there. The CPI's 12-month percent change fell about 400, 540 basis points from the peak in June of 2022 to August 2023. Uh, faster decreases have happened uh, over that time, but they've all been indicated by uh, during and immediately after recession. So anytime CPI has fallen as much as it has now, has always been associated with recessions. So moving on to real bank credit, which is another form of, of money coming into the economy, it says real bank loans and investments have decreased over the latest 12-month, 24-month and 36-month intervals. This is entirely unprecedented for an economy where GDP is rising. So again, we've got an economy that's rising, uh, you've got real bank credit that's contracting and CPI inflation that is falling quite sharply. And both of those things indicate that an economy is in recession, yet we've got uh, an economy that still seems to be expanding uh, and expanding quite strongly. So there's a real sort of head scratcher there. So just to finish off uh, as to maybe a bit of a conclusion, says the peak in the financial cycle occurred in the fourth quarter of 2021, seven quarters ago. This is right in the middle of the five to nine quarter average monetary lag, monetary policy lag since World War II. So as you know, we always speak about the lags of monetary policy, um, whether it's talking about Aussie RBA interest rates or, or in the US. Um, and so Lacey points out here that the average lag since World War II has been five to nine quarters, and we're right in the middle of that. So monetary conditions have steadily tightened through the end of the third quarter of 2023 and the process is widely expected to hold through to the end of the year and possibly even into 2024. Historically, these more restrictive conditions will expose, through bankruptcy and liquidation, those who took excessive risk during the monetary largesse of 2020 and early, until early 2022. Through September, the yield curve between the two and 10-year Treasury yields has remained inverted for over 12 months. As Duke Professor Campbell Harvey's research has shown, this barometer has, without exception, preceded each of the last recessions over the course of 70 years. So this is pretty much a 100% indicator uh, of, of recessionary activity. Such developments point the economy in the direction of an economic downturn and lower inflation. In past cycles, cost pressures such as, and this is an important one because everyone is now talking about, and we saw it uh, yesterday in the inflation data, uh, higher inflation being caused by higher oil prices and petrol prices means the Reserve Bank has to do more, has to raise interest rates two more times before Christmas. Uh, whether they do or not, whether they feel pressured to or not, uh, I'm not too sure. Whether they should or not, I don't think they should. I think there's a lot of tightening already in the economy. But as Lacey points out, cost pressures such as rising prices in oil, other commodities and wages all rose, but the Fed still won the battle against inflation. Cost pressures in a severely constrained monetary environment serve to reduce economic activity. Oil, for example, is a highly price inelastic good. Thus, when its prices, price rises, consumers and businesses are forced to reduce discretionary spending. So the rise in petrol prices is an actually additional tax on, uh, on consumers. But you've got, uh, I guess, mainstream economists saying we have to raise rates more to uh, to increase the tax on consumers. Doesn't make any sense to me, but we'll see what happens. Um, 
So just to finally conclude, in the past three quarters, uh, real GDI declined at a 0.6% annual rate, while real GDP gained at a 2.3% pace. Um, However, monetary and fiscal restraint intensified during this span, suggesting that the revisions to real GDP are likely to be lower uh, than higher. In addition, the global economy has continued to deteriorate. In the 12 months end of July, the volume of world trade declined 3.2%, a growth rate normally associated with recessions. The erosion of this very high multiplier sector indicates that the foreign sector will add to the downward force of the financial cycle. This environment will be a favourable uh, environment for lower Treasury bond yields. So, uh, again, apologies for all the, the reading and the wordiness, um, but I do encourage you to download that report and, and read it in its entirety. I think it has a lot of really good insights uh, and it's suggesting of a lot of stuff that's not priced into the markets at the moment, although I do think the markets are really starting to wake up to the monetary tightness that is uh, that is there now. The fact that the S&P 500... Uh, the NASDAQ are really starting to to uh, move into those downward trends, suggests that there's liquidity coming out of the market, liquidity's tight. Uh, you've got real interest rates at the highest they've been since the global financial crisis, uh, which is obviously an indication that, that money is very tight, yet you've still got economists talking about having to raise interest rates more. The fact that inflation is a really lagging economic indicator needs to be taken into account. Um, so I think, you know, as I said, it's just good food for thought about what is coming uh, because the market, I think, is still not necessarily pricing in uh, a recession and the impact on uh, company earnings that that will bring about. This is more centred around the US economy, obviously, not, not uh, Australia's economy, but where the US goes, Australia will follow, uh, which is why I think it's important to, to keep an eye on. Which brings me to the next conversation we're about to have. Uh, why is Bitcoin surging in a environment of tightening credit uh, and higher monetary policy? And that's the question we're going to ask our next guest. So uh, hang around for that. We'll be there with you in a minute. Uh, I'm here with my good friend Ryan Dintz to chat about Bitcoin. As I said earlier in the uh, episode, the Bitcoin chart is probably the best looking chart in the world right now. And uh, Dinsey, you could probably confirm to me, is it the best performing asset in the world as well this year? Uh, this year it definitely is, yeah. I, uh, I put a table up recently for subscribers um, and it's up about over 100% year to date for 2023. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty sure that would definitely at all. be the, the best performing asset. Certainly better than the uh, than the Nasdaq, and we showed charts earlier uh, that in you know showing the various global indices around the world all in 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 downward trends, and that's relating to um, tighter monetary policy and the fact that global economy is slowing. Uh, and as I pointed out earlier, there are a lot of indications that the U.S. economy is getting very close to potentially hitting a wall, going into recession. Although it has avoided that for for so long, people are now starting to think, okay, well, maybe it's some miracle economy and it's not going to happen. Unemployment's still low. Uh, Inflation's still a problem. Interest rates might have to continue going higher. Against that backdrop, though, what is causing Bitcoin to continue surging higher? Because it's had a really good couple of weeks, hasn't it? Yeah, so it went on a tear, especially... um late last week early this week it jumped up rapidly from the sort of 29 28000 US dollars per bitcoin and now it's almost at 35000 so that's a pretty big move even by by bitcoin standards in less than a week um but the interesting thing about bitcoin right now with the price action is it's behaving in a way that suggests 
uh, the way people who are putting money into it have changed the way they perceive it. So for, for a long time, people uh, said that Bitcoin was just basically a, a NASDAQ correlated asset. So it moved, you know, in line with, with sort of speculative tech stocks, um, albeit on steroids. So, you know, accentuated any moves. Um, and for a while, it did behave like that. Um, but in, the, in this year, especially, and especially in the last few months, that correlation has changed and it's diverged. And it's the interesting thing is it's behaving like a, like a, 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 a flight to quality, which is what Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, just called it on TV last week. It's, it's, it's behaving like a safe haven asset right now, which is really weird because traditionally the safe haven, safe haven asset is a U.S. Treasuries, a, the debt of the U.S. government. And U.S. Uh, Treasury bonds, long, long dated ones, are actually the worst performing asset of 2023. So the safe haven asset, the risk-free asset that underpins the entire financial system is the worst performing asset of 2023. And at the same time, Bitcoin is, is the best performing asset. Now, I can guarantee you no one in the mainstream finance industry would ever have picked that for 2023 because to their way of thinking, that doesn't make sense. But if you've been in Bitcoin as long as I have and you understand what Bitcoin actually is, that makes perfect sense because it is an asset that sits outside the financial system. Um, so what you were talking about before with, you know, things are looking worrying on the horizon. You've got this huge debt spiral in America where where um, a lot of people are wondering how they're ever going to pay back that debt, which they're not. Um, and that's happening with the, 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 the global reserve currency. So if you're worried about the global reserve currency, where are you going to put your money? Well, right now we're seeing Bitcoin taking some of that money, in my opinion. Uh, gold's done fairly well in recent weeks as well, which is, again, the traditional... Um, anti-fiat sort of um, asset. And you've even seen some energy assets like oil doing well, which again makes perfect sense when you understand that if people are losing faith in the US dollar to a degree, or at least to the debt profile of, of the US economy, then you need somewhere else to put your money. And when you've got people like Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock coming on TV and saying that Bitcoin represents a flight to quality, that would have made a lot of people's ears prick up prick up because you've not heard that in the last 10 years from mainstream finance you've heard the complete is, is, opposite is blackrock is blackrock the uh the company behind the the etf that might be coming out shortly is that the yeah so i suppose yeah yeah exactly so um so on one Larry, hand larry's that, talking that his book to some extent yeah so on one hand you've got that big picture view which i just gave you but on the other hand you've got this uh short-term expectation that we're going to get a spot bitcoin etf approved soon so yeah, back in June, BlackRock got this ETF bandwagon rolling when they, out of nowhere, basically uh, announced they'd applied to uh, have a, a Bitcoin spot ETF, which is something the regulator in America, the SEC, has been against for a long, long time. And for a financial institution as big as BlackRock, who are, who are one of the world's largest, if not the largest money manager, to say that they were going to get behind a, a Bitcoin spot ETF, that was a huge pivot. And we've seen... Uh, numerous big name financial institutions announce ETF applications soon. And right now the price action is a little bit of people maybe uh, trying to front run a potential ETF approval. Yep. So going, going back to the macro uh, drivers, we were t talking before, it's a really strange situation. So m maybe you could help people to make some sense of it. You've got a US dollar that's rallying and has been going up for, for some time. You've got US government debt, that is falling, and as I pointed out earlier in the in the um, in this episode, 
Uh, TLT, which is the long-term treasury ETF, has fallen 50, more than 50% over a period of 800 days. It's the biggest bear market uh, in, in history. Um, so risk-free asset, fallen 50%. Uh, clearly, uh, Bitcoin is volatile and isn't immune from, from its 50% falls as well. But it's had its correction and it's now moving higher in view of a, a, a stronger US dollar, weaker US treasury. Do you think it, it's really a, a, a matter of uh, big money trying to, to park itself in, as you said, assets that are out for outside the financial system? And in that way, it's performing uh, like digital gold, except as you've pointed out in other, in other times we've chatted, it's a much smaller base than gold. Gold is a massive market. Bitcoin is quite yeah. a small market and therefore has, has a lot more room to run in terms of absorbing money and needing to, to rise to, in, in order to absorb that, that flow. Yeah, exactly right. So Bitcoin is about you know 20 times smaller than the gold market cap around about that. Um, so it's a very tiny market. So to some degree, it moves on its own uh, direction as well. It's not a pure macro trade. It's got its own uniqueness there. Um, but what you still have got is you've still got this early stage of adoption. So we've had, you know, 13 years since Bitcoin's been alive. And for most of these those years, no one had heard of it. And it probably wasn't until the last couple of years that institutions have started seriously looking at it as something to get involved with. So you've never had this potential of so much money from institutions coming in to Bitcoin as that digital gold sort of asset, as that, um, I'd call it the anti-fiat. Um, it's almost like an insurance policy against fiat collapse. Now, and I'm not saying the US dollar system is going to collapse anytime soon, but um, we are seeing Bitcoin priced in Argentinian money or in Turkish money or other currencies around the world, which are a lot weaker. Bitcoin is already back at all time highs. So for a lot of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is already performing better as a store of value. And that's not so that's not something people can ignore anymore. And so you've got this this asset class, which is still so small, and yet it's grown over 13 years in the face of relentless opposition. It's kept on growing. It did have a big correction in 2022, but at the start of this year, like I said, we're up 100% already. Um, we've got the likes of BlackRock and Fidelity and JP Morgan talking in a way about this asset class, which they've never before. Now, if I'd, if I'd come on and, and said, Bitcoin was a flight to quality asset. Most people would ignore me and say, I'm just some uh, crypto crank. Uh, yep. But you've got Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, saying that. That is a huge narrative shift. And if you if you put that down to the level of the finance industry, if you think about your financial advisor or your fund manager, once you've got someone like Larry Fink legitimizing an asset class, it's no longer career suicide to allocate small portions into something like Bitcoin. I mean, uh, funds themselves are all about diversifying against non-correlated assets. So there is this thing with Bitcoin because it is such a scarce asset. There will only ever be 21 million of them. We've already got 19 million out in the wild. We already know a lot of Bitcoiners hold very tightly onto their Bitcoin. So the, the available supply is so small. So there is almost a first mover advantage um, for funds, for countries, for individuals, for whoever gets into it first to try and get in while it's still a small asset. Um, yep. Because it only takes a little bit of buying power to shift the price a lot. And I think that's what people are starting to realize. Uh, and it just seems we've got a convergence of factors from the big scale macro stuff, from treasury bond um, collapses in value um, to economic dislocation and inflation, and then a potential ETF approval all coming at the same time. It's, it's almost tailor-made for Bitcoin to go on a big run from here. 
So, Dinsey, this uh, podcast is called "What's Not Priced In." So, <laughs> in in by the sound of things, we, we we do have a bit of short term stuff priced in at the moment for for Bitcoin. It's had a really strong rally. It's had a really good year. What do you think isn't priced in at this level? And I, the reason I ask that is because I know you've written extensively on how you see the roadmap for Bitcoin over the next number of mm. number of years. Can you briefly? Uh, give listeners and viewers a bit of an idea of what you think isn't priced in uh, taking a longer term view. Yeah, so, so that's like, it's. Uh, I was thinking about that before. It's a little bit of a hard question to answer because I know to an extent I live in a, in a Bitcoin bubble and what I see is obvious. I know whenever I venture out into the traditional finance world and speak to former colleagues or, or even just listening to traditional finance experts on TV or Twitter, they are so dislocated from my worldview in terms of Bitcoin. I still think a lot of what I said just then still isn't priced in in the mainstream. You know, uh, you see, yep. I still see superannuation fund managers deriding Bitcoin as a, you know, as a, a money laundering asset, um, even in recent weeks criminals or, and or, or something used by criminals. They, they've still not. They've still not worked out that that narrative is changing yet. And a lot of the changes we've seen have come from American U.S. financial institutions, which in Australia, I think we're still lagging in terms of our adoption. So I would say I don't. what is not priced into me is just the extent of how far Bitcoin can run. Now, that's never going to go in a straight line and there will be pullbacks and there will be volatility. But I don't think people realize because they think that Bitcoin is expensive at, say, 35,000 U.S. dollars because it used to be you know, six hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. What they don't realize and what's not priced in is just how small it is compared to other assets and how unique it is in, in the in the function it fulfills. It's like gold in many ways, but it's also tailor made for the digital world. Um, so what I think, I think what's not priced in and obviously I'm uber bullish on this. So you have to make your own mind up. But I don't think people have taken into account just how far and fast Bitcoin can move. People think the ETF is priced in. I don't think it is because a lot of these institutions can't actually invest in Bitcoin until these ETFs are approved. So if there is going to be a fund inflow, and I've, I've read some reports saying even, you know, small allocations to Bitcoin of less than 1% result in, you know, Bitcoin moving to around about $200,000 per Bitcoin. If you start getting into the 3%, 5%, you're going up even higher. And that's just based on the maths of, you know, available supply against imminent demand. So... I know there will be volatility, and I'm not saying we're going to go there overnight, but over 2024, I think people will be surprised um, how fast and far it can move. And you'll see a lot of people then, this always happens in bull markets, but rushing to take part. And for the first time, you will have vehicles where institutional money can take part in that rise, which has never been the case in any of the the previous bull markets. So um, maybe not a contrarian take to a Bitcoiner like me, but it's, it's a take I still think isn't fully appreciated at the, the world at large. For listeners and uh, viewers who might not be aware, Ryan, you write Fattail Investment Research's uh, crypto service, uh, crypto and tech. So what are you telling your subscribers now in terms of Bitcoin? Are you saying wait for Larry Fink's ETF and, and buy into that? Or do you suggest just doing it through the traditional way of, of uh, putting it in your wallet, getting it off? Uh, uh, what's the what's the terminology uh, being not a crypto guy i'm not i'm not up with <laughs> yeah. the uh the jargon so so the you know, one of the unique unique things about bitcoin is and any crypto actually is you can self-custody your assets so most yep. other assets that you have like stocks you have to leave with a, a broker or custodian to, yep. to, to hold them for you but with bitcoin you actually can transfer that to a mobile wallet on your phone 
and only you can decide what happens with that Bitcoin. It's not held in custody by something else. And that is, it might sound like a small deal, but it's actually a revolutionary feature of Bitcoin, which is why I've spent, you know, definitely the best part of, you know, since 2017 on 2013 personally, but um, the best part of, of last year um, telling people to, you know, don't wait for an ETF to get exposure to Bitcoin because by the time that comes, the price could be a lot higher for one. But also to really fully appreciate the Bitcoin revolution and the crypto revolution, you need to start understanding things like self-custody and what it allows you to do. Um, you don't want, look, the way I see it is we're, we're definitely going down a, a world where money is going to change in some way. Uh, it changes all the time. People might not appreciate that, but money changes over the years. It used to be gold. It, yep. it used to be notes and coins. Now it's very much digital. And we are probably going to go down the road of trying things like central bank digital currencies. And to me, they are big dangers for people that want to have you know, some sort of self-sovereignty, some sort of liberty in their life. You don't want to be trusting your money to centrally controlled entities like central banks to the extent that they can control what you can spend your money on, uh, give you timelines on what to spend money on, decide what investments you're allowed to invest in. We don't, as a society, I don't think we want to go down that route. And things like Bitcoin held in your own wallet in a self-custodial way allow an escape hatch for people that think like that to take money out of the financial system and out of the grasp of those people. So that's the philosophical basis of my interest in Bitcoin. And then putting my investment hat on, the fact is the returns on offer are still huge compared to any other asset class, in my opinion. Um, like I said before, Bitcoin is still tiny compared to um, the potential it could have. It's 20 times less than the value of gold. And that's just that's just probably level one of where it needs to get to to establish itself as a as a sort of more um, normalized asset. Um, and the other thing I'd point out is that as these institutions come in with their ETFs, yes, I think it will pump the price up. But the good thing is there is this baseline of people in Bitcoin that have been in it for a while that do already hold the vast majority of Bitcoin outside of these ETFs and do self-custody them. And those people like me to an extent are philosophically behind it and they will ensure that the openness of, of this new currency and the fairness of it remains as well. And I think, um, you know, it's just a very exciting um, and interesting way of looking at the world. And when you, when you go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, you start to understand and ask questions like, well, what actually is money and who controls it and how is it controlled? And looking at that through the Bitcoin lens is a really interesting journey. And it's not, it's a lot more than just somewhere to put your money to try and make a big gain. That's a happy consequence of it. Um, but the actual understanding of how the financial system works that comes with looking at it through the lens of Bitcoin is, is really interesting as well. So that's what I try and do for my subscribers every week. Don't we don't just talk about price every week, although obviously right now when you when you're in an asset which is up a hundred percent year to date and every other asset's falling, that's super interesting from Good your wallet's story. point of view as well. But um, yep. we do talk about those big picture things and try and uh, further our understanding on, on the monetary system as well. Final question, just on the self-custody side of things. To what extent do you think the emergence of an ETF will in some ways potentially add supply to the market? Do you think BlackRock, for example, are going to self-custody uh, or, or set aside the Bitcoin that are owned on behalf of the ETF holders? Or do you think in the same way that an exchange can potentially use the assets that they hold uh, in custody for the individual, will be, uh, will BlackRock potentially be trading uh, Bitcoin that is meant to be owned by uh, mm. the ETF holders? 
Yeah, that's it's definitely a risk to be aware of. And look, in, in the Bitcoin circles that I'm in, it is something everyone's conscious of. So, so to be clear, BlackRock's not the only ETF application right now. There's about 20 out there, all different types of financial institution from ARK, you know, Kathy Wood's ARK, through to Bank of America, through to a bunch of others, through to Fidelity, through to the BlackRock. So there's not only going to be one ETF, there'll be a bunch of ETFs. And the way ETFs are structured is they will have their own internal rules. And I would imagine some of them will allow stuff like naked short selling or, or allow their 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 ETFs to be used for people going short and stuff, because that's how other ETFs work. But the devil will be in the detail. And I think Bitcoiners have got a, a good... Um, way is that there's a whole bunch of bitcoiners in the world with a lot of different expertise and they will highlight any features of any specific etf that are more advantageous to bitcoin and which ones aren't and so it's definitely something to be but it's definitely a risk and it's something people are aware of that you know you don't want the black rocks coming in getting a lot of bitcoin in the etf and then using that muscle to try and somehow either manipulate price to a degree i'm not going to use the word manipulate maybe but try and control price or even control how bitcoin evolves as a technology as well because there is some interesting um features of of bitcoin where it doesn't necessarily stand still in terms of its technical development and so there are questions being asked about well if these financial institutions have major holdings can they influence the trajectory of of the evolution of it and look there's no one right answer on that but from my understanding or from my experience um, Bitcoin has been built to withstand such attacks. It has a social consensus layer, which means that it doesn't matter how much Bitcoin you hold, you don't actually have any more say than someone like me running a node on the computer. Um, so it is decentralized enough, I think, to withstand those attacks. But they are things that, that the Bitcoiners in general will be aware of. But coming back just to price action, if we look at when um, the gold um, ETF was approved, I think that was in the early 2000s. We saw a huge rise in the gold price initially after that. So so the first stage of a Bitcoin ETF is probably going to be about Bitcoin ETFs trying to get as much Bitcoin as they can. But the only way they're going to do that is through price appreciation. No worries. All right, mate. We'll, uh, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks very much for joining us and uh, chatting about the best performing asset class in the market so far this year. So uh, let's hope it continues. No worries. Thanks, Greg. And if you're interested in hearing more about Ryan's stuff, I'll leave a link in the description box below. You can click on that and uh, and check it out. Righto. Thanks for watching this week, everyone. Um, if you enjoyed the episode, please click on the like button. Uh, it does some sort of thing on the algorithm and and uh, does put puts our episode in front of more people to watch it, uh, which ensures that we can keep doing it. So uh, if you liked it, please like, uh, put in a comment. Um, happy to always see what you uh, what you think of the episode. Uh, if you thought my long-winded reading of uh, Lacey Hunt's uh, good analysis was a little bit too much, uh, let me know and I will not do it again. All right, cheers, guys. We'll see you again next time. Bye. Thanks for joining What's Not Priced In, your weekly source of unique ideas in the Australian stock market. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support by liking and subscribing and turn those post notifications so you don't miss a thing. And uh, stay tuned for the upcoming episodes as we delve into new topics, new trends, and new stocks. Thanks for your support. Hope to see you next week.